The message from God's Word comes from 1 Samuel chapter 15. Where are we in the story? Well, God has installed Saul as king, and Saul's job is clear. He has two things. He's got to fear God, and he's got to protect the Israelites from their enemies. And so in 1 Samuel 13 and 14, which we studied the past two weeks, which is really one unit, one story, Saul acts foolishly. The Philistines are all over Israel. And salvation comes not by Saul's hand, but by Jonathan. Saul seems to act foolishly, whereas Jonathan, again and again, seems to be the kingly one in the family. And yet in chapter 15, today's text, we see that Saul is finally and permanently rejected by God. It's a long passage. Please remain seated, but hear God's holy and inspired word. Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to you to anoint me. The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them. But kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot, 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. And Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and oxen and the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears, and the lowing of oxen that I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction." Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil? 
and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the best of the spoil, the sheep, the oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow down before the Lord. Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Samuel turned to go away, and Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and given it to a a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people, before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we do come to you as needy people. Once again, we pray that you would open our eyes. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you. Instruct our hearts. Instruct our feeble minds. Open our eyes and change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. From this chapter forward, in the account of Samuel, Saul serves only as a backdrop. He's like a foil, if you will, to David and David's rise. Saul is rejected. The prophet Samuel is upset. And David, David's star is rising. Obedience is better than sacrifice is the title of the sermon. It's a phrase we've heard over and over again, probably throughout our Christian lives, and now you know exactly where it comes from. God says it about Saul. Obedience is better than sacrifice. I'm going to look at four things with you. God's command, Saul's disobedience, Saul's rejection, and God's repentance. 
God's command, Saul's disobedience, Saul's rejection, and God's repentance. I know we've talked about this Hebrew word before. It's a special word. It's Shema. It's a wonderful word. It means here. The Shema is the first thing that every Jewish child learns first. The Shema. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The Shema. And Shema is just the first word. It means hear. It means listen. It means obey. Shema Yisrael. Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Ehad. Shema Israel means hear Israel. Adonai, or Yahweh, they don't say Yahweh in the Jewish language, in Hebrew. So they say Adonai instead, but the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This word means hear, it means also listen, it also means obey. All of these, depending on context. But all of these words kind of provide a flavor for the word Shema. I'm telling you all this for a reason. This verb, Shema, shows up eight times in the chapter we just read. Hear, listen, obey. Eight times. That's significant. That's significant for this narrative. There's a reason for it. God's communicating something important to Saul, to the Jewish people of the day, to the people who read that narrative, and to us. Saul reminds, or Samuel reminds Saul of his responsibilities in the command. That he should do God's will, Yahweh's will, and that he should listen and obey Yahweh. Listen to and obey Yahweh. And it's evident in the very first command that he gets in this narrative in verse 1. God reminds Saul that he's appointed Saul to do these two things, to fear God and protect Israel. And the command he gives is related to these two things. He says, now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Shema, listen. Hear, obey. Thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts is the angel armies. Thus says the mighty warrior God. I've noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. I know you're asking yourself, what did Amalek do when Israel came out of Egypt? This is in Exodus chapter 17, we read this, that the, then Amalek came out and fought with Israel at Rephidim. And this is when Moses had to send his army out and Joshua and Ur on one side and the other held up his hands and whenever his hands were being held up, Israel had victory. Remember that? But the point is that Amalek came out to Israel just after they had left Egypt. They were vulnerable. They just crossed the Red Sea. They were traveling through the desert and the wicked nation of Amalek came out and fought with them. And God promised at that time in Exodus, he said, the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it to the elders, to the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. God promised he would do this. But he showed great mercy and patience. He didn't do it right away. It was 300 years of waiting. 300 years with no repentance. So now God commanded complete destruction of these wicked people. 
And that's what it means to devote to destruction. It's more than just a beat down or something like that. This is a holy act. He says, go and strike Amalek. Devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare anything that breathes, basically. How could God command the destruction of an innocent people? That's what many people think when they hear this. Of course, this is not a valid argument. These aren't innocent people. There are no innocent people. These are wicked people. And after 300 years of patience, 300 years of no repenting, they become even more wicked. They're still wicked. Samuel refers to them in verse 18 as sinners. Nothing had changed despite God's mercy. And now was the time for God to take vengeance. And I do want to speak just a moment about the vengeance of God. This is not God boiling over in anger like a human does. You know, sometimes you may be pushed and pushed and pushed and you just kind of, you, you overflow. You get angry. This is not God's vengeance. This is the measured timing of a merciful and just God. It's a virtuous vengeance. It's not arbitrary. It's judicial punishment. Imagine a judge who declares that a certain murderer must die by the electric chair. He has to follow through. The system has to follow through. The Amalekites were sentenced to complete destruction, and God was more than patient, slow to anger, abounding in love. They were still enemies of Yahweh and enemies of Israel. You should note also that God's good news always involves grace and justice. It's part of the good news, both grace and justice. Always. The year of the Lord's favor always comes with the day of vengeance. You remember in Isaiah 61, actually Jesus read Isaiah 61 in Luke chapter 4 when he started his ministry. He said, well, let me just read it to you. It's a beautiful passage. If you ever just want to be encouraged, read Isaiah 61. It's a messianic prophecy about what Christ really came to do. But when Christ was handed the scroll, he opened it to this passage. And he said, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor and sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and said, Today this is completed in your hearing. What he didn't do is continue to read, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of God. The day of vengeance of God. You see, the year of the Lord's favor was followed very soon after, in AD 70, by a day of great vengeance. And just as the gospel right now is going to be followed very soon, we think, who knows when the timing will be, certainly not 1988, as we learned in Sunday school, nor was it 1921 or any other date that people have picked, but there will come a day when the day of vengeance of God will come. The enemies of God are always brought to justice, always. We see this even in the book of Revelations, chapter 6. John says he saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and their testimony they had maintained. 
They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? And of course, we know in Revelation that God does just that. His enemies and our enemies are avenged. So this is not something new that God is doing. God sent Saul to execute his justice against the Amalekites. Their time had come. We can take comfort from this, actually, that God will bring justice for us, for his church, for his people all over the world. We don't fight any longer with physical weapons. We don't stockpile guns so that we can fight off the enemies of the church or anything like that. We don't go to war to fight for God. Ephesians 6 teaches that our battle is spiritual. We fight on our knees. We fight with love and with truth, with prayer and proclamation. And we trust God to protect and avenge his people. That's his job. Those who come out against the church of God, like the Amalekites, will be avenged. And that's a comfort for the church. We can stride forth knowing that victory is ours and doing what we've been told to do, like Saul should have done. But now let's look at Saul's disobedience. We heard about Saul's command, his disobedience. His disobedience was significant. Saul summoned the people, 200,000, and they went and they fought. He rationalized a few changes that seemed reasonable to God's command. He left the king alive, and he also took all the best stuff for himself and for the people. Certainly this partial effort for God was better than no effort for God, right? And yet that's not right. God regretted that he made Saul king. We'll talk about that regret later. But focus with me on the sentiment of the text. God was grieved at Saul's disobedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. And God was grieved. When you sin against God, God is grieved. Saul had disobeyed. And Samuel, like a loving pastor, like a loving prophet, was deeply hurt as well by the disobedience to God's commands. And sin is always destructive, and the consequences are always horrible. But you see, Saul thought he was okay. So this is the instructive part for all of us. When you rationalize your sin, oh, that's fine. I did mostly what I was supposed to. It's disobedience. And we'll find out why. In Saul's rejection by God, this is the third point, the third thing that we see, that Saul is absolutely rejected. In verse 13, he says, I perform the commandment of the Lord. God asks him three questions through Samuel. Verse 14, what is this bleeding of sheep I hear? Like, that's actually kind of funny. What is this bleeding of sheep I hear? You've performed the commandment of the Lord. What am I hearing then? In other words, no, you didn't. You disobeyed God. It's like when your kids come to you, hey, did you eat that brownie? They're sitting on the table here. No, I didn't. And it's all over their face, right? That's kind of what Samuel's saying. But he had an excuse. You see, he rationalized his sin. The people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice In other words, it's not my fault. I did mostly what I was supposed to. Question 2, verse 19. Then why did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you not shema the voice of the Lord? You said, go devote to destruction the Amalekites, the sinners, the Amalekites. Why did you pounce on the spoil? 
Actually, no, Saul, you disobeyed. You did not do what he told you to do. Verse 20, Saul has an excuse. No, I have obeyed. Sounds like a child, doesn't it? No, 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 wait, I did. I went on the mission. I brought Agag, the king, and the people took the spoil. But it wasn't my fault. I did mostly what I should. Can you hear yourself saying these things as well? I can, of my own heart. Question 3, verse 22. Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of Yahweh? As in Shema-ing, the voice of Yahweh? No, actually, your half-hearted obedience is actually disobedience. And it doesn't please God at all. All your burnt offerings, you're going to sacrifice all of these sheep. He would much rather have you obey in the first place. And the three questions lead to a declaration in verse 22. Behold, to obey, Shema, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen, Shema, than the fat of rams. To listen, obey, to hear God is better than sacrifice. It's better than rams. For our part, we can glean that external worship cannot be substituted for obedience to God. All of our efforts at external worship, whether privately or publicly, if you're not obeying God, if you're not doing what you know to be right, if you're not obeying from the heart, it's worthless. Dr. Ralph Davis, I think, strikes a a hard blow. Your Gloria Patri, your Apostles' Creed, your Christian luncheons and Bible studies, none of these matter unless you're keeping Christ's commandments. As we read in 1 John, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. And God actually goes a bit farther in verse 23. He says, for rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is like wickedness and idolatry. So if we're to understand this narrative for us, if we're to understand this this narrative really in light of all of Scripture, For to understand our relationship with God, we need to look directly at our hearts, not at our external goodness or half-hearted attempts at obedience. Saul had a clear command from Yahweh, and he disobeyed. From the heart, he disobeyed. And we have excuses when we disobey as well. I worship God in my own way. That kind of obedience, it's so legalistic. We're all saved by grace. God understands my heart. I believe in Jesus. Nothing is necessary besides that. I do more than most people. Nobody's perfect. So in the context of disobedience, not doing what we know is right or doing what we know to be wrong, all of our excuses are what God said here. Presumption. The rebellion. To reject God's clear command is to reject God. That's the lesson Saul learned. That's the lesson we learn. God had shown him great mercy and kindness. He says in verse 17, You're little in your own eyes, but I exalted you. I made you king. And yet you still pursue your own way and you reject me. Because you've rejected the word of Yahweh, I've rejected you from being king. It's a heavy truth, but... Here's the great paradox of the Christian life. And it's good news. That God provides exactly what he requires for us. 
He requires perfect obedience. He provides this in Jesus Christ. He requires a transformed heart, wholly devoted to Him. And He provides this by His Spirit. He regenerates our hearts. He requires a life lived to the glory of the Father, and He provides this by leading and guiding us by His Spirit every day. In other words, you Christian cannot ultimately fail. If the Spirit of God lives in you, you cannot fail. You see, Saul was not self-correcting. Saul was always running from God's Word. The Christian is self-correcting. The Christian will do what Saul should have done, which is repent. Obey from the heart. Conform to God's law. We can pray like David, even though we know that we are sinners. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins and let them not have dominion over me. And let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. These are the words of someone who repents. Was David morally superior to Saul? That's debatable. David had issues. But his heart was more was superior to Saul for, for sure. Because it had been changed by God, by his spirit. So let's talk about repentance. This is the last point. We see two kinds of repentance here. We see Saul's repentance, which seems half-hearted and self-serving, certainly. Just like his obedience. He says some good words in verse 24. I've sinned, I was afraid, pardon my sin. But then we realize that Saul is kind of just wanting to get past this little speed bump, this little roadblock. He wants to, to move past this problem and put it behind him. It's not as if he were filled with remorse at his disobedience or so overwhelmed with grief at sinning against a holy God. He, he wanted to look good before the people. Please return with me, Samuel. Honor me before the elders of the people. Repentance is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and the apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with full Hatred of his sin and grief of his sin turn from it unto God with a full purpose of an endeavor after a new obedience. This kind of heartfelt, life-changing repentance, that's Westminster Shorter Catechism. We see that Saul didn't really have a true sense of his sin. He doesn't show any grief or hatred of his sin. It doesn't weigh on him. It doesn't seem to weigh on him at all. That's a problem we all have. Our sin doesn't weigh on us. It doesn't sit on us. We don't realize the gravity of, of sinning against a holy God. Samuel shows a bit of repentance for Israel. He kills the king of Amalek before the Lord, it says. He has a good, good understanding of what repentance should look like. And the last point I want to make as we talk about repentance is that God is, is shown to repent or regret. And if you just look at it at face value, that's a problem for Reformed folk. We know that God is sovereign. We know that His decrees are just and right and pure and forever. Unchanging. He knows the end from the beginning. He doesn't change His mind like men do. He's not fickle. His purposes are never thwarted by man, nor is His plan affected in the most minute degree by any of our disobedience, by anything that happens on the earth. 
So how could God say in verse 11, he repented of making Saul king? Well, I think the answer is in verse 29. When Samuel, who's writing this, Samuel knows exactly what he's doing. He's not making a mistake by saying, God never repents in verse 29. He's not like a man that he should repent. It's the same Hebrew word. It's not a blatant contradiction. And this isn't the only place that this kind of this paradox or this tension is shown to us. Genesis chapter 6, if you remember, it says the Lord was grieved. It's the same word. The Lord repented that he made man on the earth. In Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should be like the Son of Man, that he should change his mind. So how are we to understand this kind of contradiction, seeming contradiction? I think, first of all, we have to know that God speaks to us in Scripture using language humans can understand. So when it says God repented, what he's showing is that God actually has grief. He's displeased by sin. It grieves his soul. He's pleased by obedience. The repentance of God in this context just communicates in language that we can understand, that can weigh upon us, that God's relationship with a person changes as their rebellion or commitment to him changes. And he's genuinely grieved by sin. And then in verse 29, we see that he makes a double assertion that he will never change or repent what he has decided. In other words, his plan never changes. So we're really talking about two different aspects of God and his relation to man. Thomas Watson said, there may be a change in God's work, but not in his will. This is true. So ultimately, there really is no contradiction here. It's it's a purposeful play on words. It's an irony that's meant to grab our attention. And make a point, a theological point. I think our takeaway is that if we live like Saul in disobedience, if we presume upon God's grace, it really is going to change our earthly privileges. God will change his treatment of us here on the earth. But ultimately, it may also reflect an attitude of our hearts. And if the state of your heart is revealed to be wicked by your actions. It will be grieving of God someday to say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. So we've seen Saul. Saul displayed before us. And it's really a reflection of our own hearts in many ways as well. And this should be a challenge to us. And it should spur our hearts to love our Savior. Because you know what? Jesus also is more pleased by obedience than sacrifice, but Jesus is the obedient sacrifice. He's the perfect sacrifice. Interesting that we can see Christ displayed in this very passage, that God desires obedience more than sacrifice, and he sent his son to be that sacrifice. Which brings us time to a time of the Lord's Supper as we consider what Christ